Hey everyone, welcome back to the Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. Today we're thrilled to be chatting with Jane Anderson. She's an award-winning writer of plays, television, and movies with over three decades of produced material, some of which she directed, including her directorial debut, which I produced, Lucky Me, um, it, called The Baby Dance, and it was nominated for two Emmys. Jane's work is known for its rich and complicated depictions of female life, like Oscar-nominated film The Wife and Olive Kittredge, for which she won an Emmy for writing the script, and another one. I think you won two Emmys for that, right? Uh, producing, yeah, it got best series. Congratulations. Well, first, let's say welcome to Jane. Jane, we're so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here, Meg. And you were indeed my very first producer. I know. I'm sure she can tell us some happy stories and some sad stories. <laughs> That's with every movie. <laughs> All right. So Jane's uh, agreed to do our adventures in screenwriting or what we did this week. I'm going to start this week. So my week, I'm in the throes of an agent doing going back and forth on a possible deal for myself and my husband to write something. So I'm in that moment of being able to thank your agent for their skill. You know, my agent is wonderful. He loves to make a deal. Like he lives for it. He just lives for making the deal. And I always try to remember to thank him um, for that expertise and his passion for me. But I also always love that it's never just about the money. It's about who I'm working with and the communication strategies of how this is going to work together and, you know, setting me up uh, and in this case, myself and Joe for success, you know, like really making sure that we're going to be able to do this project successfully, creatively, we're going to be able to turn in a draft we love. Um, Because, you know, that's also part of the gig as a writer is when you take a job, which kind of what, you know, we've heard on the show before um, that you have to have passion for that job so that you do it well. And that then you can get the next one, right? You never, if you take too many jobs, you don't, um, aren't connected to, and you don't do them well, you won't do too many more. So, um, that's where I am. It's in a happy place to be. It's a good place to be, to be trying to finish up a deal. So, and then, you know, I have this perfect moment, right? Between, before all the blue sky imagination of how great it's going to be. <laughs> It's like the day before school starts where all your folders are organized. You right. got all your pens. Got my new shoes. Be organized this year. Yeah. Right. All the new stuff. And this year's going to be the year. Right. I'm right there. I'm, that's where awesome. I am. What a fun place to be. Well, congratulations. That's fun. Lorian, how was your week? My week was good. It's all about finishing. I am going on a trip at the end of the week. So I am trying to get everything done and delivered. Uh, but still, you know my best work, which means that I don't have time for overthinking, which is a glorious experience. Like I have no excuse to sit and like rework and overwork and dither and question. It's like, I write it. It's good. I feel good about it. Go done. Here you go. Delivered. So, um, it feels really great. Uh, cause it turns out overthinking is not only not a productive thing I do, but it also feels really shitty. So I am having a great week right now. Fantastic. But we'll see how the rest of it goes. <laughs> Fantastic. I love it as a fellow overthinker. Yes. Jane, how was your week? I just love what you just said about overthinking. Um, I have been, um, I'm on the third draft of a, a screenplay that I'll be directing. Um, and, you know, every step thinking line I just go over it and and the structure and and what do I do here to make it sound to make it pop and my manager Rosalie Swedlin said to me you know um there's probably going to be a writer's strike um so get through this draft and uh, write it the way a director would write it on this draft. And so at the same time that I'm polishing, I'm also working my director's lookbook, which is um, a wonderful way uh, to get away from the written word and play with imagery. Um, and I, I always feel that when you get uh, 
stuck in your head polishing or 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 uh uh addressing the notes that the studio has given you um that it's good to what I call step back from the easel. And that's what going visual does for me. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Just going to write with joy yep. and uh, delight and get through it. Yeah. Enjoy have you it. Always, have you always been an overthinker or is that something that's like come and gone in, in your career? I was not an overthinker when I was a baby writer, when I was back in my 20s, because I, I was an actor at the time. And um, it was so thrilling to be able to um, write these scenes and hand them to actors, and they would make magic with them. So in the very beginning, especially when I was writing my plays, I was not self-conscious. But over the years, as I've gotten notes and also as my taste and expectation of myself has gotten more uh, sophisticated, um, I now watch every step mm. and I yearn. I, you know, if I had one wish as a writer, I would love to return to the innocent days when I would just write yeah. and you know, write without criticism. I also have, um, I've learned uh, as a playwright to uh, write with the New York Times critic in my head, which is really fun. That's really, really, you know, uh, <laughs> a, a, a positive thing to do to yourself, right? Yeah. Um, and when I write a film, of course, there's, Manolo Dargis and, you know, the, the film critics. Here's the other thing, the other voice in my head. Am I hip enough? I don't know, Meg, do you ever, do you ever go oh, there? Oh yeah, of course, of course, of course. Absolutely. I mean, I can, my brain can find anything to taunt me with and uh, make me uncertain about, but absolutely, you know, I have a, college age kid and sometimes I do run things by him and he'll there is the occasion that he rolls his eyes and he's like no mom that's <laughs> not what 20 year olds do anymore or whatever it could be but absolutely you know what you said about um the immediacy of giving a scene to actors when I started out as a playwright and there was something so amazing that didn't allow overthinking I would write it and we uh, you know we workshop one of my plays the actors would read it I would hear it ah I know what to do or the actor would have a question ah I know what to do or the director would have a question so it was like I could take that immediate feedback and put it into the script and make it better it's sort of like when you're writing a screenplay especially a feature you're in sort of a vacuum of your own all those your own voices and you're acting out all the characters yourself so it's a it's a, just a totally different experience but I do it, there was more the immediacy of it, that that hit of what is it, uh, where you get the hit of the good feeling, like the adrenaline, okay. the validation, dopamine. For me, it was like dopamine, dopamine. Let's go to rehearsal, dopamine. And this it's so is like, funny because I'm, I'm terrified of actors reading my stuff. So oh, it just I loved depends it. on where you're sitting, I think. But I, I don't come from plays, uh, which you guys do. Um, Jane, can you talk a little bit about that in moving into the industry as a playwright and how that affects your writing? now in terms of television and movies and all the forms you do just you know coming in as a playwright um yes well i i would really love to address um working with actors um i lauren like you i i just love handing my script to great actors and i've i've been very privileged to work with um People like Vanessa Redgrave and and um, Glenn Close and Fran Fran McDormand. Um, what I like about the and they're all stage actors, so they don't take anything personally. There's no vanity in their work or the rehearsal process. Um, I love getting feedback 
from actors during rehearsal. Um, on the wife, um, I, I went to Glasgow where they were um, shooting and, and we had two weeks of rehearsal and Glenn was very challenging and she could go line by line and, and question me. Um, and, and I want to urge your listeners to not take what actors say to you personally. Um, they're the ones who have to wear the clothing that you make for them. They're the ones that have to make emotional sense of your words on the screen. I know there are instances where if you have a, a star, for instance, who is all about being a star and will not give you the kind of good, solid, authentic feedback that you want, that kind of actor makes writers and directors and producers defensive. But go into rehearsal with an open heart and an open mind. Because even if your actors can't be fully articulate about why they can't say a certain line, there is a reason they're feeling that. And as the writer, you listen to it and then you dig down and offer a solution. The same thing applies when you're getting notes from the studio and from your executive. Some executives are really smart, really wonderful, um, such as Meg LaFauve, um, who can give a note because you are a writer and you are a creative, you can give a note that makes sense and that is useful. A lot of studio executives, uh, are they are not creatives. All they know is something doesn't feel right and they want it fixed. And often um, I've been handed solutions that make absolutely no sense. They're just terrible. Um, and I just nod and smile. And then I go back and I find what needs to be done to um, address that concern. I could give an example. You want an example? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yes. When I was directing Prize Winner Defiance Ohio, we had a uh, screening at DreamWorks and um, it was a time when as a female director I, I wasn't and writer I wasn't given a, a lot of respect and and all these executives were sitting in the screening room watching my my cut and and um, the sound was terrible and and the picture was terrible and I noticed a couple of guys on their uh, cell phones um during it. So, you know, I was all set to be really pissed off at the end of it. And um, in this particular cut, there was one character played by Woody Harrelson, who was very, um, you know, he was, he played a, a man who was an alcoholic and a very difficult man. And um, they all complained about him. They said, he's not likable. We don't get him, cut him out, make less of him. And my composer was in the room with us, and I. Uh, and afterwards, he walked with me, and he said, "You know what? I think I can solve that." And there was a scene where Woody's character just beats the shit out of this um, this big freezer that that Julianne Moore's character had won in a contest, and he's raging and beating it, and and my composer said to me, what if I compose some music with maybe a cello or a violin that expresses the pain that he feels because he can't provide for his family? And he did, and it's gorgeous, and he put that in. So th that's an example of... And, and there are many examples I could give you as a writer that um, I would 
take a left turn and cut something or or fix it and often they even think it's their idea and that's okay um our objective is to tell a good story our objective is to make a film that sings and a film that touches an audience a film that has pace a film that at the end of the at the end of the piece that your audience comes away with something you're not you're making the film for them not for you and that helps take the edge off of one's own bruised ego when one is when, when you're embattled by notes or criticism or um your own your own neurotic this isn't good enough or i am a horrible writer if you can just constantly if you can just when the bad voices either inside your head or outside your head start in remember your audience and remember why you're making this film in the first place good advice love that i love that jane when we worked together you said something that i've held for the rest of my life and everything i've done i've i've repeated it i always credit you when i say it um you were talking about theme and you said the thematic is the DNA of every scene. And if it ultimately isn't in the DNA of that scene, it has to go. But that idea of theme being DNA of a scene has such a powerful idea. And it's something that I use in my work and I teach. And I would love you to talk a little bit about that. You know, when you're putting together your screenplay from scratch and you're facing you know a hundred separate scenes you need to get your characters from a to b and there's a lot of shoe leather you have to get through and often while you're doing that you lose sight of what the film is about and I find that in my very first drafts, because I'm worried about um, just getting, getting the plot right, I forget about my theme and, and I write a bunch of extra scenes that don't add into that. And when I have my outlines, um, I will put at the top of the page what the film is about so that when I'm and and your theme is different from your plot um for instance let's go to the baby dance so the plot is uh a wealthy and fertile couple goes to the south and um to adopt a the unborn child of of a of a poor southern couple that's plot the theme of that is filling a hole that you have in your gut and every scene is about the pain of these two women either needing to have a child needing fertility or having to give up so it's it's about the exchange of a child it's about giving a gift that is painful for both for all parties and so every scene i wrote is about the dance between um these people trying to to uh get the other person to fulfill their hurt and make the make it all better so so you don't have any just a traveling scene well i remember jane in terms of what you said in terms of every character has a hole i remember the scene with peter rieger yeah. and you shooting that night yeah. and he's on a hotel bed and 
you climbed on the bed with him and whispered to him, your wife is going to leave you and you are going to die alone. Like you literally yes. articulated the whole for him. That was the subtext of the scene and the beautiful scene yes. when the Southern father is just listening to his favorite country song in the dark in the trailer park, listening to the train go by. And there's no, there's no explanation. Yes. There's no subtext. It's, but it's happening. You can, it's a beautiful, it was a beautiful mournful of the, I remember the train whistle that you picked out because it was mournful because you were trying to bring up the hole in this man just visually and, 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 and in the sound. And, and then I remember the day that you, we were shooting where the two, uh, the two men come together in the hallway of the hospital. And you said to the DP, I just want it to look like two stray dogs meeting in an alley. And he knew exactly mm -hmm. then he was going to pull the camera up high. And I just remember, I was like, Oh my God, she's so good at this. She's so good at articulating and finding for actors and DPs this emotional thematic that she's using in every aspect of this film. And I I don't remember you articulating it as the whole inside of people, but of course that's exactly what it was. Um, and of course I, I would assume Jane, that it wasn't like you came upon that in the first draft necessarily. Well, it was a play. So I'm sure when you wrote the play, but doesn't yeah, this yes. DNA sometimes have to be something that reveals itself as you're writing? Yeah, sometimes it does. Um, but I find if I don't nail something down in the beginning that I can get lost in the weeds. Um, you brought something else up that I, that I think is a, a really good thing to talk about, which is silent scenes that we write into our screenplays. Plays, writing for theater is very talky, um, a very, it's a, it's a dialogue heavy um, form. Uh, the beauty of film is that you don't need your characters to always express what they're thinking and feeling and wanting. You can see that visually. So um, I learned um, when I was rehearsing um, Normal uh, with Tom Wilkinson and Jessica Lange, um, that was also adapted from a play of mine. And the play, of course, the play was the film script. The first couple of drafts that I took into rehearsal was dialogue heavy. And I remember Tom Wilkinson turned to me after reading the scene and he said, you know, Jane, I really don't need this line. I can take care of it with just a look. And that is something as you're writing to remember that what you're trying to say emotionally or plot wise in a scene um, doesn't have to be explained with dialogue that it's much more effective because of the the visual impact of this media to just write in what your character is looking at or what a prop or you know I I always put in um objects I just slip in objects that I feel are symbolic of the characters so that my camera can always refer to it like in prize winner going back to that giant freezer which Evelyn Ryan won in a contest and it's such a big freezer her husband brings home a tiny packet of hamburger and puts it in the freezer and just the visual of that of him looking at this pathetic piece of cheap meat in this vast white cavernous thing it does it, i don't have to put the words in his mouth which is you know wow i you know i'm i'm really i'm really a lousy uh, uh i don't know how to take care of my family you know don't have to do that um and then later when he beats the freezer. So look for look for those things 
that those objects, or it could be a car, it could be a landscape that reflects the inner life of your character. These things are all, I love these little touch points, all those things you're talking about. Um, are they all there in your first draft? Like we talk on the show about like the barf draft where you just like <laughs> barf it all out, vomit draft, bleh, right? And you mentioned that too, like you're laying down your plot. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what your feeling is about that? Like the initial getting it out, that first shitty draft? Oh, yeah. Unless your um, drafts are like gorgeous, pristine things of beauty with symbolism and visual oh. gorgeousness all over them. <laughs> no, my my first drafts are, are so terrible. People over explain themselves and... and um, there are scenes that just go nowhere. And oh, no, my first drafts are terrible. Um, I feel very validated that you're saying this because the answer that you gave before was so rich and complex and vivid and evocative and beautiful. And I'm like, oh, God, I'll never get there. But if we're starting in the same place, and I think all our yeah. listeners should hear this, too, like that takes a lot of work to get to the point where you're able to like come up with that imagery and that symbolism and the delicacy of writing that scene in a play and then into film, right? It, it isn't just magically show up on the page that way. We say this like in every episode, but again, I just, because your point was so specific about the beautiful scene with the freezer, like, and maybe it was there in a first draft, but like not with all the other pieces around it. So like listeners, no, listen. Yeah. <laughs> no, it it's, it's uh, by the time one of my scripts is ready for production. I've gone through maybe 10, 11, 12 drafts. I do want to urge our listeners talking about shitty first drafts. If you haven't read Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird yet, get it. Um, because she is a whole chapter. It, it's a, a chapter on shitty first drafts. Um, she also has a wonderful chapter called... Uh, Radio station K fuck uh, K fucked radio yeah yeah K fuck radio thank yeah. you um, I adore that book yeah in which she describes um the, what goes on in a writer's head when they're messing you know telling themselves that they're a horrible writer um we had her on the well, show I, we could put her episode in the the liner notes yeah we it was it was brilliant yeah. Please do. You know, even after all these years and all the times I've read the book, I when I'm in trouble, when, when I'm hurting myself, um, I'll I'll get the book out and read it. You know, read chapters. So back to the various drafts. Um, I'm working on. I'm adapting uh, Ann Patchett's book called The Magician's Assistant. Um, I love Ann as a writer. I, I mean. Uh, her novels are delicious and I read this way back in the 90s when she wrote it and it's stuck with me ever since. My first drafts of adapting either one of my plays or someone's novel are very self-consciously trying to capture the original material and you can't do that with film. Um, novels, especially novels like Anne's, which um, the plots are very soft. And with The Magician's Assistant, there's not, um, the main character is wonderful, but she doesn't, she's more of an observer than an instigator. And so when in adapting so my first draft uh was very true to the novel and it was soft and it it didn't work as a film and there was no arc to the main character um so but i had to do that draft um to get my loyalty to the novel out of the way my second draft i've um really mixed it up. I've, I've 
given the main character a whole backstory and a whole way about her that gives her some edge and propels her, propels the need that she has. But at the same time, I've kept the spirit of what Anne is trying to say in her book. And that's what an author cares about. The theme is about, um, I have I have my notebook here. Um, I love that you're, that you don't just know right away because, you know, we have so much stuff going on as writers are. Thank you. Yes. Our non-writer life are this, like, we don't just like, oh, the theme is this and I can talk about this, the blah, blah, blah. It's like, wait a minute. I have to shift gears. What? Right. Like back to, to that. So I appreciate that. It doesn't just like, you know, it's always nice to know that the people we admire so much are not perfect. Yeah, but <laughs> Not I, that you're not you know, perfect, but you know. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever heard Stephen Sondheim talk? You know, he just, I saw him, it, it just comes out, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> ah, there we go. I have it. Here's the theme of, of Magician's Assistant. Illusion isn't delusion. It's there to make life bearable. So this is a group of characters whose the main character is the assistant to a magician. And, and magic tricks are just fascinating because a great magician isn't out there to fool you and trick you and make you feel like a jerk. A great magician is there to give you a moment of wonder, of astonishment. And that moment can kick you into breaking the patterns of your life. So the theme of this is getting over the trauma that has gripped your whole life with the aid of magic, illusion, making up stories about yourself. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as it gets you to the end, which is a reconnection with love and family and wholeness. That's beautiful. That's what has kept this screenplay whole. And um, and I've sent, you know, um, Anne and I talk a lot. And, and it's always really scary to send your screenplay to the novelist. Um, Meg Wolitzer and I, when I was writing The Wife, um, we would talk. And, and I finally sent her the screenplay. And, and it's always... It, I feel it's a courtesy um, to the novelist because it's their original child. Um, but when I, whenever I adapt a novel, I, I will have a talk with my novelist, and I'll say, um, "I love, I love this book. I love what you're saying. I understand what you're saying." This is a novel. I have to make it into a film. I may have to change things. I may have to keep things out. I might have to make things up. Um, is that all right with you? And I get their permission. If um, Elizabeth Strout gave me permission to mess up, to mess with Olive Kittredge, and Meg said, go ahead, and Anne said, it's yours. She said, I've writ written it. Fine, go, do what you want. You have to have that permission in order to fly with an adaptation. Otherwise, you have the novelist looking over your shoulder inside of your head. So in other words, in order to get through your script, you have to keep eliminating and shoving aside all those voices that are watching you and and putting the brakes on you at every moment. And I also want to I want to highlight something you as you were talking, you know, you talked about how often in early adaptations the main character is very reactive watching um because in novels that works because you can go interior and we talk about that a lot especially for emerging writers and honestly for a lot of writers including myself, my first drafts are always very reactive. 
And it's so interesting because you come from acting. So the words you're even choosing are active. You're saying the word propel. You're saying the word instigate. You know, instigate is such a great specific word that we can all take away today and look at our scripts and find out how is our main character instigating the plot. I love how uh, people who come from acting have such active words. Um, and when you're, because you are an actor, how do you approach writing on the page, your character, knowing what an actor will need or want in that part, in that role, in that character? Well, it's just in my gut for my training. Um, and when I was a young actress and, and I was in New York and I would do a lot of first time plays, I knew how hard it was to make bad dialogue work. There are times when I'm working on a scene and I've been working on it for hours and hours going back and forth and back and forth and I can't get my characters to talk like real people. I can't get anywhere with it. And when that happens, I always know it's because the scene either shouldn't be there at all or the intention in the scene is all wrong. And often when I see that this scene isn't working and I'm not getting anywhere with it, I suddenly realize, oh, this is only about exposition. My characters are here just to explain to the audience what's about to happen or, or what's going on. My characters don't want anything or need anything in this scene. My characters aren't going after anything. And that little step back helps me to rejigger the scene or rethink why it's even there. Jane, your dialogue is so, obviously your acting background has given you such a precise ear for dialogue. And it is reassuring to hear that it takes multiple drafts sometimes for you to find it. But, you know, sometimes writers will ask, how can I get better at dialogue? And that is such a challenging question because like you mentioned, it sometimes is just something in your gut. But do you have any advice or craft advice specifically around trying to find more precise or more human sounding dialogue for our writers who might struggle with that? Well, I I think I really learned to write dialogue by just listening in on people's conversations. I love uh, if I'm alone in a cafe or, or uh, waiting for something. I'll listen to people's dialogue, even walking up and down Runyon Canyon. As you pass people, you 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 get snippets of of incredible human interaction. It 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 could either be two guys I I heard you know complaining about a woman who was drunk at a party, and just the way they parsed it, it was so David Mamet. Women, uh, oh. You know, another great opportunity is everyone's on their cell phone now and they talk loudly. So listen in and listen to how people express themselves usually badly. And here's the other thing. There, there's, there are two kinds of characters. There are the incredibly eloquent characters that I'll, I'll call them your Shakespearean characters or your unbelievably intelligent characters. And you can spend all this time thinking of brilliant dialogue. And, and that also goes with comedy. You know, you're honing it. But most people, when they are in a stress situation or they need something or they're, they don't know how to tell someone that they love them or everyone talk we tend to talk on the surface and let the we we talk on top of the subtext and i love i think as soon as you understand what subtext is your dialogue will sing um no no one will walk up to very few people will walk up to someone that they're furious with in public 
and start screaming at them. It, for instance, if you're furious with someone, but you're at a family dinner and everyone has to be polite. Okay. That's so much more interesting than a scene with just out and out yelling. The subtext of I'm furious at you, I'm hurt with you, will give you dialogue such as um, passive-aggressive dialogue, which is marvelous and, and delightful to write, and, and it's very real. Study yourself. Study how you will hide your feelings under talk about the weather or like in Normal, where uh, Tom Wilkinson's character is transitioning into a woman and it's Thanksgiving, right? And his son, who's having a really hard time with his father transitioning into a woman, has come home. And uh, Tom Wilkinson's character and the son talk about sports because Tom's character wants to prove to his son that he's still manly. And so, yeah, that's, that's how, that's, give yourself that challenge. I think that's great. I, I also, uh, being self-aware as a person is really helpful. Like noticing how you talk, like you said, noticing how you talk, little tells you have, like when I get nervous, I'll end every sentence with, right. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause I'm looking for validation. I keep talking of course, but like just sort of understanding yourself and getting into your own subtext. Uh, which I think is a great research to go out and sit at a cafe with your earbuds in and you're listening to other people talk. Love that idea. So in terms of like research, right? That's a kind of research, going out, listening to people talk, investigating yourself. What other research, like when you're adapting a book or other projects that you have that involve digging deep into something? Or how do you feel about it? Do you do it at all? Oh God, research feeds. Research is my favorite part. Um, sometimes I'll spend several weeks, even a month on research because you want to make the world building authentic with the, the piece I'm working on now, Magician's Assistant. Um, I had HBO hire me. I, I found a magician I, 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 that I really liked. I, I read his book and I found that he gets the emotional um the emotional psychology of magicians and what being fooled is all about so and then he led me i went to the magic castle and i've hung out with magicians but it it's not just i'm not looking at their tricks i don't even want to know how they do it i want to know why they do it and that informs my theme in fact the theme i just told you which is um Illusion isn't delusion. It's there to get you through the day. Um, I, I got that from talking to magicians, um, and they're mostly men who talk about being little boys um, who are not that social, sitting in their room, working on tricks so that they can go out in the world and shine. When I did Normal, um, I had because I adapted it from a play. All the scenes were in were uh, inside. So in the play, I didn't understand the um, world, the Midwest world that that was set in. So I went to the Midwest, especially the farm country, to look at what my imagery would be, and that informed for me when I look when I looked at the uh, combines going up and down the fields, up one road, down another, up one road, down another. I realized the Midwest head, especially the people I was riding, they never get off the tractor. They go up one row and go down another, up one row, and they do it through famine, through floods, through drought. It's that visual that informed me of who they were and what I wanted to show on screen. So I did a lot of B, B filming of, of fields and tractors and, and that straight edge and, str and narrow 
world. I, I do urge everybody, whatever world you're uh, writing about, either get there, talk to people in it, or just go down the rabbit hole on the on the web. But the real places are what really will feed you. Yes, because when you're talking about that, you're also, I understand you're talking about visuals of those tractors going up and down, but I also hear you talking about the character who sits on that tractor and their mindset. Yes. How do you deal with writer's block? All right, writer's block. It's such a good question. And, and of course, I get it. I usually ask myself, why? Why am I sitting here stuck? And um, as I said before, one reason is because I'm writing a scene that isn't ever going to go anywhere, or I'm writing something that I don't care about. The second reason why I have writer's block and is uh, fear, fear of failure. And um, fear of not pleasing the people who've hired me or pleasing the author of the book. So that's why I said before, get permission or from your original source that you can fly and go wherever you need to go. If you if you don't get that permission or feel that permission, um, you'll be blocked. That's why we often tell emerging writers, you have permission and we would like the goal to be your first draft to suck as much as possible. <laughs> Same kind of intellectual yeah. permission to do the bad version. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, when I when I'm in rehearsals for a play, I watch actors struggling with the scene because they they they're not in the first week of rehearsal. Your actors really don't know they they haven't gotten under the skin of their characters yet, so they're struggling and they're doing really bad readings and bad versions. And I always say to them. This is okay because you have to understand I did all my bad versions in private. And that's something to remember as a writer. No one has to see your mistakes. The only person that's seeing them is you and the stupid voices you have in your head. You know, you, you know, so get rid of the critic from the New York Times and the executive or the star you want to please or 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 your own insecurity it's okay to write bad stuff that's the only way to get there actors do it in front of other people which i think is the bravest thing of all directors make bad choices producers make bad choices we all have that right that's right it's our right it's our right yeah. it's our <laughs> it's a necessary it's a uh, yes. what is it it's our call to action you must write yes. badly. Um, so do you have any uh, other advice for our listeners for emerging and pro writers? If you could offer one piece of advice. Write what turns you on. There were so many times in my earlier career where I felt um, I had, you know, my agent said, oh, you need to do this. You know, take this assignment write this. And it would be something I really didn't care about, but I felt I needed to be a good soldier and and write the thing, and it would never work. In, in my early career, of course, I worked on staff, you know, for a show I didn't particularly care about, but, I, but I, I, I did that to get a leg in, and we all have to write things we don't really care about. But you need to find something in it that turns you on because that that's what will get to great writing. We all have a personal theme that we want to write about, and it shows up in every great script that we write, you know, every script that's our own. Know your theme, your personal theme, and um, seek out the work that 
that rings that bell. I now know that when something is pitched to me, when I or, or I'm sent a, a novel or whatever, I always know that if I get that that beautiful, you know, a rush, I I know that it's uh, resonating with something deep inside. But I know if just reading the synopsis makes me sleepy, I I walk away. <laughs> <laughs> same can be no. true of your own right right like if I write a synopsis for something and I was like oh god so awful it's like I no, it's not working <laughs> and let me just um talk briefly about outlines because this is this is really important I really think it's essential to write an outline for a screenplay you you need to know the structure and where you're going but no one likes writing an outline right you know it's boring, it's it's dry, but I've learned how to make my outlines creatively exciting to myself and a turn on. And I allow myself while I'm writing outlines to just throw in some dialogue, throw in an image. So that way you're not just dealing with plot lines, you're also expressing in the outline, not only to yourself, but to your executives, what the film is going to be about. Also, it's okay to start writing tone into outlines. And my outlines almost start to look like a script. We, we finished with three questions, but before we get there, I just want to make sure we have a chance for you to recommend the books that you would recommend to writers on writing. Oh, I would recommend um, Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. Oh, here's a really good book. Um, screenplay by Jules Selbo, who's a friend of mine. And she talks about the 11-step story tr structure, which I think is, is just a brilliant um, way to help yourself plot out the the three acts and and so it's no longer three acts it's it's more about um your character wants something they can't get it they try to get it they almost get it they fail again and they continue to try and that's all part of the 11 steps and um i i, th I think it's i think it's a great book i grew up when I went from um, playwriting to uh, uh, screenwriting, I, I did get Sid Field's The Screenwriter's Workbook. And I have to say, I have to say it's really, it clarified a lot for me. Beginning, middle, end, plot points. Um, and I love the first one you said because it's the whole steps are driven by want which emerging That's writers have exactly such a hard right. time with want. So I'm going to get that book just so I can teach it, so I can get people to see that want is creating all of it. Uh, another book I recommend is Becoming a Writer by Dorothea Brand. Yeah, I think she wrote that in the 50s. And um, that's when I wrote uh, read that when I was in my early 20s. Um. And it was all about setting up your schedule, setting up your rhythm as a writer. And I've stuck with that ever since. You know, are you a morning writer, uh, a night writer? You know, show up every day. Here, here's the other thing, other piece of advice about showing up. There are days when I really, really don't want to write, but I make... And, and there are days when I have no idea. I, I, I'm so confused by, by the story I'm telling and how I'm going to tell it. And, and my head is in such knots. And I, I just don't want to be here in front of my computer. Um, I'd, I'd rather be gardening. I want to be out. But I show up. And... At the end of showing up, something will happen that will get you to the next point. 
here's the other thing. Once you're kind of on a, a run where, where it's starting to pop for you, it's always good to end your writing day right before you've completed the whole fabulous scene you're writing so that you can go back the next day and you have this thing to look forward to. So it, it's giving you a head start. All right, Jane. So I just could talk to you for hours and we're probably going to have to have you back on the show because there, I just have so many more things I want to know and get into your head even more. It's just such a delight, but we always end our show with the same three questions. So Jane, um, what brings you the most joy about your writing? Watching great actors take it and run thrills me, just thrills me. And, um, the collaboration, once I'm done with being locked in the cell and taking it out to a team, God, it's just thrilling. Okay, here's the second question. What pisses you off about writing? <laughs> it's lonely. It's lonely. You know what else pisses me off? Putting hours and hours and hours and weeks and months into a script and then turning it in and no one bothers to read it for another couple of months. And then they treat it like, why can't you make this better? You know? Uh, yep. Yeah, the flippancy. You feel like you bled on the page. And then, you know, I totally yeah, understand. Yeah, yeah, it's like... Uh, or they never yeah. respond, which is my favorite. Oh. The ghosting, I just can't get over it. Oh, it's so rude. It's so rude. And the other thing is, um, we all hate notes, right? But when you get a lot of wonderful, very specific notes... It means that that your executives or your studio or your producer, they're really into it and they want to make it. They want to make it work. You should be worried if you don't get many notes and they're general. It means. Yeah. Oh, true. Yep. Yeah. You know, that's a good insight. Keep going. We're loving what you have. Keep going. Oh, God, just put me, just, no, just pull it right now. God, just tell me if that's the note you're going to give me. Because I know what that means. <laughs> so wise. Um, Jane, the final question we ask is if you could be remembered for one scene that you've written, and it could be from TV, play, movie, anything, what would that scene be and why? Oh, God, that's a, hard question isn't it it's almost cruel i know it really is it's mean and it also requires my use of memory which isn't that good <laughs> um, all right we could amend this if it is such a mean question it seems to stump a lot of our guests so perhaps you've inspired us a scene yes. that you love a scene that you've written that you love is that just as hard sorry yeah. i tried to rewrite it sure. it didn't work well, no, that's that's a really good rewriting. Here's this thing. By the time I've gotten through the final shooting draft, I love every scene because every scene has to have something big in it. You know, every... I, I can't separate the scenes because they're all, they all mean something to me. That's when you know you have a script that's ready to go. That's beautiful. I love that. Jane, thank you so much for being on the show. It was, to use your word, delightful. And uh, so thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure to be with all of you. And, um, Happy writing, everyone, and hush up those voices in your head. Write with delight. 
Thank you so much to Jane for joining us on today's show. If you haven't yet, please join us on our Facebook group where the conversation about craft, process, and community continues. And thanks to Jeff and Savannah for producing this episode and everything else. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing with delight.